Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, good evening, wherever you are. This is Danny Haifong. Welcome to another stream um, earlier than usual, but that's because we have two very incredible guests, as you can see here, uh, both returning to the program. We have Loki, a hip-hop artist, and he's also a journalist now over at Mint Press News. Be sure to follow them in his show, The Watchdog. And we have Ali Abunima, the executive director at Electronic Intifada, the Electronic Intifada. Welcome both. Thanks so much for joining me today. Great Thanks to be here. Yeah. Great. Yeah, no, uh, uh, both of your work are so important. And this has been a really busy time in the Arab world, in the Middle East, or what's called the Middle East. Uh, before we begin, though, make sure that as you're coming onto this stream, that you're liking, hitting that like button and supporting this channel all the ways that you can in the links in the description. Now, I want to start with there's a few things that's been happening over the last week or so. And uh, on this show, we talk a lot about China. And of course, there's been a flurry of diplomatic activity led by China, one of which hasn't gotten too much attention, which is that uh, China's foreign ministry has called on uh Israel and Palestine to negotiate for peace. And now we have a call with uh, Zelensky and Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping calling uh, Vladimir Zelensky. This is a couple months after the peace proposal that China uh, submitted and has been calling on all sides to begin negotiating for peace. But in this call, he said that he would be sending a special envoy to... Uh, Ukraine to and related countries, he said, traveling to related countries. It'll be interesting to see which those are to begin the process of a negotiated settlement. What do you have to make about this? Maybe we can start uh, with uh, you, Ali, uh, uh, on these developments and, and what they mean. Yeah, well, just to say it's great to be back on the show and uh, great to be with you, Loki. Uh, it's just amazing. The, the work you do is incredible. And uh, not just at Mint Press News, but we've been very happy to publish some of your work at the Electronic Intifada. So um, I feel like uh, we're, we're, we're almost family here in this discussion, all of us. Um, yeah, the the it's it's interesting that China has now assumed in a real sense the role that the United States always claimed to have but didn't, which is sort of the role of global leadership, the role of bringing people together to find diplomatic solutions. Um, and it's, I think, particularly uh, significant in the Middle East or Southwest Asia because the U.S. has for decades monopolized the so-called peace process. So even for China to suggest that it be a mediator between the Israelis and Palestinians is something that would have been laughed at a few years ago. And I don't think anything immediate is going to come of that. But the call now from China is one that I think can't simply be dismissed. China is now a credible mediator. And we, we saw that in a very real sense, because just a few weeks ago, China mediated the historic uh, reconciliation or rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which I'm sure we'll say more about later. But just in regards to um, 
the phone call between President Xi and Zelensky, that's something that people in the West have been demanding of uh, China for a while in the hope that somehow Zelensky is going to be able to convince China to change its policies towards uh, the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I think that that is, of course, not going to happen. Uh, but I think China is probably the only country that could play a credible mediating role because of its relationship with Russia and its just growing power and confidence. And it's clear that the United States only wants this war to escalate and to continue uh, at the uh, hor horrifying uh, uh, human cost that it's, uh, it continues to take. So I think it's a good thing. Uh, talk is what's needed right now to end this war. And I think China's the only power that credibly uh, brings some weight to the table in that sense. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy to jump in here if it's not untoward. Well, um, you know, absolutely, Ali, thank you so much for everything that you have done with Electronic Intifada. It has been such an important vehicle through which we have been able to directly confront unaccountable powers for so many years. And at times when small glimmers of hope that we've seen in the mainstream have dropped the ball, whether it was with the lobby, the US edition, uh, Electronic Intifada has come in and picked up that, that role and done so, so fantastically, and also been able to sustain um, its presence over these years, which is the biggest you know, victory of all, especially in the shadow of this uh, horrific, most McCarthyite period since the period of McCarthyism, for sure. Um, in terms of uh, this question of China's involvement with the Palestinian issue and with the issue of Zionism imposing itself on people in the region, I would say there's an interesting um, comparison to look at. When we look at the 28 countries which are currently sending weapons and equipment to Ukraine, almost all of those countries designate or at least are attached to a body which designates the Palestinian resistance factions as uh, terrorists. So, for instance, the European Union, which supposedly uh, represents the will of 446 million people, uh, obviously designates um, the democratically elected government in Gaza as a terrorist organization. Um, and overall, the governments that make that designation, we can say, represent about 861 million people. Now, the governments that represent those people are actively involved in the war in Ukraine. But then when we look at the other governments that don't make that designation, we're, of course, talking about even Switzerland, which is 8.5 million people. We're talking about Pakistan, which is over 200 million people. But most importantly, China, which is 1.4 billion people, does not make that designation. And also importantly, China and Chinese people have a way of relating to the Palestinian cause, seeing themselves as post-colonial subjects that have gone through the three opium wars that have been ravaged by British colonialism that to this day are subject to interference from the United States and others. 
there are relations with Israel, that is a fact, but also there is an understanding of the Palestinian cause. And even in the last few years, particularly signs of a, a, a closening of relations between Palestinian resistance factions and uh, the, the Chinese government. But also in addition to that, the very interesting thing I would say about um, the role China has been playing in mending fences between Iran and others in the region is that the Chinese, at the same time as investing 400 billion in the Iranian economy, and let's be clear, the Palestinian resistance factions, while Ukraine is armed by 28 different nations at minimum, the only state actor which actively materially supports the Palestinian right to armed resistance, which is um, clear in several UN resolutions and in anybody that has an ounce of humanity, um, is Iran. Now, what China has been able to do is say to Saudi Arabia, if you want us to trade with you in currencies other than the dollar, if you want the benefit of a good relationship with us, then you have to drop the sectarian agenda in the region and uh, be willing to engage with Iran as a good faith actor. Now, that has led to a very interesting situation where the resistance factions in the region, and it's even been reflected in the way they're behaving, their ability to intervene most recently um, against what was happening in, in Al-Aqsa, and the way that they are speaking. There is a newfound confidence in the discourse that we are seeing the main resistance factions in Palestine and Lebanon uh, speak with, and that is because they understand that when Iran is taken out of isolation, so too are the resistance factions. And so then instantly what that does is weaken Israel's ability to assert power over the Palestinians. And also, of course, we remember the unity intifada of 2021. It certainly wasn't the United States active at the United Nations to try and stop the bloodshed. It was the Chinese. And of course, the Israelis will be keenly aware of that. And so this shift in global power is definitely going to affect the, the balance of forces in Palestine and Lebanon, for sure. Yeah, and maybe Ali, you can jump in because you also wrote this really great article. I, I'll actually pull this, this one up um, as you're speaking about why the Saudis are calling off their Israeli marriage, and you bring up so many great points, one of which Loki was kind of referring to, which is, as the U.S. declines, so too does Israel. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that in the context of there has been an escalation of violence uh, in Palestine and occupied Palestine. Uh, Loki brought up the Al-Aqsa uh, violence. There was also a raid on a refugee camp. Uh, by Israeli forces killing uh, one, I believe it was a, a young Palestinian person. Could you, could you tell me how this has happened? Because the, there seems to be a divergence now. Saudi Arabia does not feel like it has to appease the United States via normalization of Israel. In the article, you say that actually, and back in March, Biden was trying to get normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, cemented and it just didn't happen. So what's going on here and, and what's the larger context? Because it seems like, yeah, this multipolar moment is a big reason why this is occurring. 
absolutely. Uh, Danny, you've been so good on your show about really explaining and talking about the shift to a more a multipolar world. And, and that's something that, that I think is clearly happening. And we're seeing it reflected in a very real way uh, in the region, in the, the political dynamics of the region, and particularly around Palestine, as Loki said. Um, and just before getting to the point that you uh, raised, Danny, just a few days ago, the Israeli defense minister or war minister, more accurately, uh, Yoav Gallant, uh, made a statement where he said that Israel will face no more small wars. In other words, for the last however many years, Israel has been confident that it could, for example, attack Gaza and bombard Gaza uh, to its heart's desire, and nobody will dare to lift a finger against it, or that it could go against Lebanon, as it did in 2006, and nobody will lift a finger, or that it can attack Al-Aqsa and attack Palestinians Jerusalem, and no one will lift a, a finger. What we saw shift decisively in May 2021, when Israel attacked Al-Aqsa, uh, uh, back then was that the resistance factions in Gaza entered the fray in defense of Jerusalem, in defense of Palestinians in Jerusalem. That was a first. We'd never seen that before. Then what happened recently at the beginning of Ramadan just a few weeks ago when Israel, again, we saw these brutal images of uh, palace of, of Israeli thugs beating worshippers inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Images that were caused shock far beyond, you know, far around the world in a way I've never seen before. This time there were rockets from Lebanon, a significant volley of rockets from Lebanon. Nobody claimed responsibility. Uh, Israel, blamed Hezbo uh, Israel blamed Hamas Primarily, I think, because they didn't dare to blame Hezbollah. Because if they had blamed Hezbollah, they would have been obligated in their minds to retaliate against Hezbollah. And that could have opened the gates of hell for Israel, as they would see it. So what that means is that Israel now cannot make a move on one front without risking a multi-front war. So that means, in a sense, the end of divide and rule. Because what has allowed Israel to exercise so much power is a successful divide and rule where it had Palestinians isolated in Gaza and a few more isolated in the West Bank and then Palestinian citizens isolated from everyone else and Hezbollah isolated from the Palestinians and so on. And Iran isolated from the region, which as... Uh, Loki pointed out, is the only country that supports the legitimate Palestinian right to armed resistance with, uh, with uh, real support. So that's how we see it within the region. Now, if we shift out to the broader picture, just cast your mind back a few years ago to Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and these grotesque and vulgar displays of normalization between Israel and various Gulf dictatorships, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and also Morocco and Sudan, uh, 
with Israel under the rubric of the so-called Abraham Accords. And the, there was this euphoric um, moment where they thought the Palestinians are done. All the Arabs are embracing Israel. This thing is done and dusted. We can bury the Palestinians and move on to a new era. The big prize, though, it was always understood that the little countries come first and the big prize, the big wedding is Saudi Arabia. And so when Netanyahu came back into office uh, at the end of December at the head of the most openly right-wing and fascist government in Israel's history, he was like, I'm ready to do this deal with Saudi Arabia. But what happened in the meantime? The Saudis were pushing all the normalization. They were totally behind the UAE and Bahrain and everyone signing up with Israel. And they were already playing footsie with Israel. They had opened up um, their uh, airspace to Israel and so on. And it was just a matter of, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. But a big shift happened. The Saudis figured out that the United States, who they have relied on to guarantee their security explicitly since 1945, basically it was a, a, the deal was oil for security. You give us the oil, we guarantee your security. That that was really not a very good proposition for Saudi Arabia anymore because look at the U.S. record in the region, you know, uh, Look at the mess the United States has, you know, they invaded Iraq. The goal was to guarantee American power for another century. Remember this, the, the, the invasion of Iraq was, a pro, was something pushed by something called the project for a new American century. This was supposed to consolidate U.S. unipolar global power forever to demonstrate to any country, you disobey us, we can send an army to invade you and occupy you and overthrow your government. Same story in Libya. Same story was attempted in Syria with the Obama administration arming these jihadist groups. And as Loki mentioned, the sectarian policy, the, the effort to drive this, the, the idea that the region is impossibly split between Sunni and Shia Muslims, which has always a fabrication, this, this sectarian incitement. Anyway, the Saudis look at this, and then they look at the U.S., chaotic U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan, from Afghanistan in uh, uh, August of uh, 2021. And they look at that, and they must be thinking, well, these people, first of all, Washington is 7,000 miles away. If the proverbial... Uh, uh, SH hits the fan for us, who's going to come and rescue us? Who's going to come and save us? We cannot count on the Americans. Now, where does Israel fit into this? What is the logic of normalizing with uh, Israel if you are a U.S.-dependent vassal state like Saudi Arabia? The logic is, you know, if you normalize with Israel, that gains you more favor in Washington. It makes the Americans more willing to protect you and embrace you. It, you recruit the Israel lobby to lobby for you as well. And we've seen that APAC, for example, the main Israel lobby group, has been doing a lot of lobbying on behalf of Saudi Arabia 
in the past couple of years. But if you decide that actually the Americans are not our best bet, then the logic of normalizing with Israel disappears, or at least it is greatly diminished. And that is the calculation the Saudis have made. And what are they doing instead? They are embracing their relationship with China, even with Russia, and they're looking at the map and they're saying, we are, we sit next door to Iran. Iran, Iran is not going away. We are on the same Eurasian continent as Russia, as China. This is where our future is. And so it's very logical from the Saudi perspective. And of course, Israel is very unhappy and Washington is very unhappy. They've been desperately trying to seal this deal and it hasn't happened. So that's the global shift that is happening. We are now in a multipolar world. Washington doesn't give the orders anymore. Even a country like Saudi Arabia, which was always an American vassal, can now say no, because to put this in terms that capitalists uh, can understand, there's now competition. There's now competition. The U.S. is not the, uh, is not the monopoly anymore, and Saudi Arabia can build not just relationships with other countries, but potentially much more beneficial relationships, because what does the U.S. bring to the table? You know, it, it brings military might, it brings destructive power, it's destroyed country after country, but the U.S. is not investing trillions of dollars, as China is, in building up infrastructure that actually benefits people. We're talking about all over the world, roads, railroads, in Iraq, which was destroyed by the United States. The, the Chinese are rebuilding not just you know, infrastructure and power stations, they're building literally thousands of schools in Iraq. And that's the story across the world and the continent. So you look at that. When Kamala Harris goes to Africa to do like a propaganda tour for the U.S. government, what does she bring other than slogans and other than, you know, threats and bullying? She doesn't bring... Really bad slogans, too. Yeah. Not, not, not inspiring slogans. Exactly. So this is the world we live in now, and we can see the impact in very quickly changing the political dynamics in the region, uh, and, uh, in Palestine and the, the region around it as well. Jump in, Loki, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing when you look at Iraq is, you know, the United States, they dropped 30,000 uh, bombs within the first month alone and killed over a million people. But across that whole entire period, they've only supposedly built 19 schools. Yet China have signed a deal with Iraq to build going forward 8,000 schools, 1,000 schools in the short term, but 8,000 in the long term. Of course, people in the region would look at um, China's activity in Africa and say 30% of the infrastructure projects that are happening in Africa are carried out by China. There's 3,500 uh, Chinese companies active in Africa and 85% of the employees are local people. They look at the Chinese record of emancipating 850 million people from poverty and look at the United States as currently having a life expectancy lower than Cuba which it has been at economic war with for many, many decades. And they say, well, which would we prefer 
to pick. I think also there's another aspect of Israel's isolation, which is quite interesting to pick up on. Now, when we look at the revelations around Pegasus and the recent uh, no-click um, hacking um, uh, software that Israel has, the Cure Dream one that was recently revealed, both of these projects of revealing these software were carried out by organizations funded by the U.S. government. Now, this is an interesting change. When we look at, for instance, the Saudis using the uh, Pegasus software to hack the phone of Jamal Khashoggi before killing him, this is a way in which many states are outsourcing their eavesdropping and surveillance of dissidents essentially to an arm of the Israeli state. And so when we examine why the United States would be funding organizations that not once but at least twice or around three times, have revealed very expansive Israeli intelligence operations would also cause us to question if there is some sort of trouble in paradise. And even when we look at the recent um, unrest in the squatter colony of Israel on Palestine, we can see that, of course, you know, we know the Supreme Court is responsible for legitimizing um, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, the torture of Palestinians, the imprisoning of Palestinians. Um, and, and, and so we understand that the, the uprising in its defense is not an uprising necessarily for the greater good. But moreover, when we look at some of the key organizations behind these demonstrations, for example, Movement for Quality, for quality Government in Israel, this is an organization that for the last three years has been funded by the U.S. State Department. And so even, you know, the, the, um, the petulant brat king or the, the, the petulant brat prince, Yair Netanyahu, took to Twitter and started blaming the U.S. State Department and Biden for what was happening on the streets of occupied Palestine. We have to remember that a wrong clock can be right um, every now and again, and even you had Ben Gavir come out and say, we are not a star on the U.S. flag. We are an independent country. So all of these things are symptomatic of sharpening contradictions that exist within this project. And it will be fascinating to see what direction it goes from now. Of course, we know that with the Zionist movement, the uh, so-called labor side of the Zionist movement, led by Ben-Gurion, essentially with Haganah and Palmach, they provided the backbone of what would become the Israeli military and the Israeli state. So the Jabotinskyite side, which is represented by Netanyahu, is not the dominant trend within the Israeli intelligence and military establishment. So, of course, the U.S. documents which were leaked actually showed that the U.S. surveilling the communications um, of, uh, of Mossad leaders found that actually Mossad was actively encouraging, not just giving permission to um, uh, intelligence employees to take part in the demonstrations, but actively encouraging demonstrations against the Israeli um, alleged government. And so this is quite an interesting um, contradiction which is developing here, and all of it contributes to making that power more and more precarious. Of course, added to the fact 
that you had, you know, during the uh, Unity Intifada in May 2021, Palestinian construction workers within the political unit of Israel went on strike for one day. 65,000 Palestinian construction workers went on strike for one day. And that cost the Israeli economy $40 million. And according to the vice president of the Israeli Builders Association, he said clearly, we can't build without them. In addition to that, you had Palestinian transport workers going on strike for a day, leading to the cancelling of 300 journeys. So when you take that into account, that Israel's military is a reserve military, meaning they have to take people out of the traditional economy for these assertions of power, there's so many pressure points within this picture which are just becoming more and more fragile, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's at now let's do a little bit moving around the world, shall we? Um, let's go to Europe. Um, so Europe, uh, the EU, uh, as you both probably know, has been <laughs> the most affected by its participation in the Ukraine proxy war, in the U.S.'s proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. Now it's getting caught up in Taiwan. So Macron was just in Beijing um, not too long ago, earlier this month, where he distanced himself from the U.S.'s policy around Taiwan. He affirmed the one China principle. A lot of people suspect he's he's not the most genuine of people. And I think his record kind of speaks to that. But now you have the EU, uh, Joseph Borrell, this foreign like the Europe's foreign minister so to speak calling for the EU countries to send warships to Taiwan kind of following along the United States's path uh, Ali maybe we can turn to you what do you make of what do you make of this and, and, and how yeah how do you understand this I mean it's it's madness these people don't learn first of all I mean you know they they had been instigating conflict between Ukraine and Russia for years. We know, I don't want to go into all that history, but we know how the EU and the US were behind the 2014 coup in, uh, in, in Kiev. They were literally, the EU ambassadors, along with Victoria Newland, were taking part in the so-called Maidan protests. Um, and so they orchestrated that coup. They armed Ukraine for years. They supported the war against uh, people in the east in, the, in, in Donbass. And they were, uh, you know, uh, salivating for this war. So the, when uh, Russia entered Ukraine in February of 2022, clearly, at least in hindsight, it's very clear that this was, in a sense, a bluff from the Russians. They wanted to show how serious they were. Uh, they didn't intend, I mean, this is my reading, to occupy the whole of Ukraine. They were trying to get a negotiation going, and they had already been betrayed on the Minsk agreements, which would have resolved the issue in Ukraine. And, and we've recently had confirmation from Angela Merkel and from the former French president, Francois Hollande, that the Western side, the European side, never took the Minsk agreement seriously. I think the Russians wanted uh, to uh, essentially scare the Ukrainians into finally signing a deal. 
and they got, or, or keeping to a deal, let's say, and they got to that point with the negotiations in Istanbul in March of 2022. But then NATO blew it all up. They said, no way will we allow you to negotiate a settlement to this war because this is our chance to get Russia. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been will building up for. And the problem when you believe your own propaganda that, oh, Russia isn't a real country, that its army is all corrupt and poorly trained and starving and, and what, what have you, is that you make enormous miscalculations. And that's what they did getting into this war. It turns out that the Europeans and even the United States with its $900 billion defense budget is not set up to fight an old-fashioned long land war, similar to what Loki said about Israel, but on a bigger scale. Israel can't fight long wars because it has to take uh, people out of its civilian economy uh, because it's a reserve army. So they have to shut down the whole economy to fight a war. So the Israeli doctrine has always been short wars on our own terms, one week, two weeks, three weeks maximum. This is on a larger scale what's happening with Europe and the United States. They don't have the artillery shells. They don't have the tanks. They don't have the air defenses to fight a long war against Russia. And they're learning that the hard way now. And so amid all this, you're going to pick a fight with China over Taiwan. And you want to tell me that is just not sheer madness. Why are they doing it? There has never been, there is no issue over Taiwan. All of them agree, the United States, the European Union, and every country on the planet, planet except for what is it now, Guatemala and a couple of other very tiny countries, they all agree that Taiwan is part of China, number one. And number two, that the People's Republic of China is the only legal government of China. That's not me saying that. That's what the State Department says. That's what the European Union policy is on paper. China has never shown that it is interested in reintegrating Taiwan into China by force. It has never shown that. On the contrary, what we've seen, the consistent policy has been to integrate economically. And this can be shown by the enormous growth of trade and investment between mainland China and Taiwan. The only uh, factor that brings the military equation in is the foreign meddling, particularly the American meddling, but now also the EU. Joseph Borrell and whose navy is going to go to Taiwan? I mean, the European navies, they have a few ships. Great. They have a few ships. But the idea, what are they going to do? If they successfully provoke a war across the Taiwan Strait, as they have provoked and instigated war in Ukraine, a European army is going to go and rescue Taiwan? A European navy is going to go and rescue Taiwan? No, they're not. So what's going to happen is another country is going to be destroyed People are going to die for nothing. This is insanity. But I also think it is the uh, 
death throes of a dying empire. They see their power diminishing globally, and, they, and they're lashing out in every direction. It's like they want to still prove to themselves, I've still got it, you know? I, I, can, still, I can still go anywhere in the world and, and subdue anyone. You can't anymore. And if, if these delusional people in Brussels and Washington think China is going to take any of this lying down, I mean, we, we say it all the time, but you can imagine the reaction if China were to send its brand new aircraft carrier, Fujian, to the English Channel or to the North Sea or to the Gulf of Mexico what the re- or, or park it off of New York Harbor, what the reaction would be. And yet they think it's the most natural thing in the world for them to go and interfere on the other side of the world in a situation where nobody asked them to, they can do no good, and there is no problem except them. Uh, Loki, do you have anything to add? Absolutely. You know, we are witnessing the convulsions of a dying narcissistic um, empire, which is constantly speaking in uh, terms way beyond its means and projecting its capabilities in a kind of imagined world, which is increasingly out of touch with the reality. When we look at the way the United States has driven what has happened in Ukraine, you actually can look at the very same year that it invaded Iraq. In 2003, the very same time that US troops were on the ground in Iraq, they established something in Ukraine called the NATO-Ukraine Civic League. Now, this was a NATO-funded project to establish NGOs across the country that could astroturf the idea that membership in NATO was a panacea to all of the problems in Ukrainian society. You also had the NATO info stands, which were set up at all of the major universities in the country and uh, libraries and municipal buildings across the country in order to proselytize for the uh, the NATO deity. And what has that led to now? Well, we've got a situation where Lockheed Martin have increased their stock value by 37%, Northrop Grumman by 41%, Raytheon 17%, General Dynamic 19%. We see um, Ukraine being divvied up in these lend-lease arrangements, whereby it's costing something like $3 billion a month to prop up the Ukrainian economy. Of course, all of that is music to the ears of BlackRock, to the World Bank, to the IMF and JP Morgan. And that is exactly what is happening. Now, when you look at the United States uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan, the US refuses to accept that China in the space of 30 to 40 years, you know, you look at the point in the early 80s, China's GDP was literally 10 to 15% of the US GDP. Every year since then, it's increased by 10% until COVID. Um, And the United States is struggling greatly with the, the, the economic equilibrium of the world returning to a more natural setting. When we look at the the year that the East India Company um, was founded, we actually see that the 
um, amount of, um, you know, Britain produced just 1.8% of world GDP. And uh, as, re as, uh, as far as, as 1750, India and China accounted for 75% of world industrial output. Now, historically, there have been at least four to five periods of human history when China has been the most advanced um, nation in the world. And so what actually is happening is the aberration of history, which was the British Empire, in which um, economic power was divvied up to a smaller section of humanity, is now becoming closer to a more natural kind of equilibrium. And the United States is doing everything it can to avoid that. And it is willing to sacrifice Taiwan at the uh, the a kind of um, a shrine to to uh, U.S. former glory as as the the imperial ruler of the waves, but it's just not going to be possible. You know, think about the madness, and madness is the exactly um, correct term to use for it. When they're getting Australia to have nuclear powered submarines, you know, poor Australia, they elected Gough Whitlam, who merely wanted to redistribute some of the uh, economic power in the society, who wanted a slightly fairer society for the indigenous Aboriginal population, who wanted the US out of Pine Gap. And what did the US do? They overthrew Gough Whitlam in Australia. And now Australia is actually being asked to go to war with China for the United States. This is absolute madness. And anybody in their right mind. You know, I would say actually that uh, war with China would be um, far more widely opposed, even across a lot of the business classes in uh, the West, because many of them have understood clearly. You know, you look at Rishi Sunak when he was um, going back and forth with Liz Truss to be the Conservative Party leader. Liz Truss was clearly given a briefing that came from US intelligence, which said that Rishi Sunak was soft on China. And she used that to rail against him. The British political elite wanted to sign the deal with Huawei. They wanted that to happen. The US came in and whipped them into shape in order to not do that. So there's great swaths of humanity that understand, you know, when you're looking at China, you are talking about 1.4 uh, billion uh, people. That is one fifth of the world's population. And many people, many, many people in the world are deeply opposed to this uh, ridiculous war game that the US and its, uh, and its quaint sock puppet Britain are attempting to play with China. I would argue certainly the, the French and the Germans will not uh, I mean, the Germans seem like they are, but I, I, I don't think overall that people see this as a clear-minded policy. And I just, I think it's so important to emphasize what you said about the changing economics, because, <clears throat> I mean, if you think about it, in 1945, uh, the United States represented about 50% of global GDP. You know, the, the U.S. was the one power you know the yes of course the u.s did take part in world war ii but it didn't suffer the kind of 
devastation and death that, for example, Europe did, or the, especially the Soviet Union, which, which sacrificed more than 25 million of its citizens to defeat the Nazis. And the United States was an incredible industrial power. It was, you know, to use the cliche, the arsenal of democracy. That is, as they, as they would, would call it, it was the arsenal of uh, Jim Crow and the arsenal of, imper of British imperialism, but they called it the arsenal of democracy. Today, that's not the case. The United States does not have the industrial capacity, you know, to, to wage a land war on the European continent against Russia by proxy as it's doing now, but it doesn't even have the industrial capacity to survive the kind of economic war with China that some seem to want. I'm, you go into any store in the United States, any general goods store, household goods store, and practically everything is made in China. If we had an economic uh, war with China, we would be uh, lacking basic household goods. It, it would be a crisis that would be unprecedented in our lifetimes. We'd be talking about the kind of, of, of deprivation perhaps people experienced during the, the, the Depression. And the same is true in the UK. The same is true across Europe. So... You look at where the world's industrial capacity is and where the world's energy supplies are and indeed where the world's technology is shifting. China and Russia have incredibly complementary economies. Russia has effectively limitless energy supplies and raw materials and minerals as well as an industrial economy. China has just incredible industrial capacity, but also a, 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 an incredibly rapidly growing knowledge economy, research base, science base, medical base. What have we got in the West? What is the United States investing in? You look around the, a city like Chicago, where I am now, and the infrastructure is crumbling. The public transit is falling apart. The schools are underfunded. There are people living under every bridge and underpass. And that's the picture in every major city in the United States. Where is the investment in people? You know, the United States is not investing in its own people and its own society, let alone building infrastructure around the world like China is. So look at where this is going. It's not very hard to figure out. It's not very hard to figure out that why... You've, you, I'm sure you've all seen the video when a German official goes to lecture the president of Namibia about his country becoming too close with, with uh, China. President uh, Hage Geingob of Namibia will respond and say, why do you come here and keep uh, lecturing us about China? The Ch Chinese didn't come and colonize us. They're building schools and hospitals. That's the story all around the world. And this kind of, uh, I can't remember if it was Danny or Loki who used the, the term narcissism of the West, that you think if you come in and give a high-flying speech about democracy and apple pie, that everyone is going to be, oh, wow, these people are amazing. No, people want schools. They want roads. They want infrastructure. They want ports. They want 
solar panels. They want wind farms. And this is what they're getting from China. And of course, the way this is portrayed in the media here, the lies about oh, that China is putting these countries into a debt trap. You know, it's all projection because that is what the West did after formal decolonization in the 50s and 60s. They put this global South into a debt trap. There was more, those countries were kept poor. They could not build up their infrastructure. They could not fulfill the promises of independence and the optimism and hope that came after decolonization because they had to pay these debts to the loan sharks in London and New York and, and, the, and the IMF and the World Bank, which were which uh, uh, turned from direct outright colonialism to neo-colonialism. And we are now living in an era where formal decolonization is turning into real decolonization because ultimately you cannot have sovereignty and independence without economic sovereignty. And this is how the world, I think, is changing. And I don't claim to be an expert on any of these topics, but it's impossible not to see the changes that are happening. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, neo-colonialism, you have uh, South Korea's president, Soon Yeol, uh, I believe it is. Uh, no, Yoon suk Yeol. President Yoon suk Yeol is in the United States right now, and uh, he uh, was uh, invited by Joe Biden, by the Biden administration. Uh, and there's been a lot happening for South Korea. Um, they've recently made a lot of moves to appease the United States, one of which just happened the last few days where uh, South Korea restored Japan, the former colonial power over South Korea, Japan's preferred trading status, despite the fact that there's a lot of people in South Korea angry with President Yoon already for not going far enough to recompense or comp to compensate the victims and the families and the descendants of those who were forced and enslaved by Japan uh, uh, to labor and, and essentially uh, uh, destroy their lives. So I I'm wondering, you know, uh, given all that you said, Ali, maybe Loki, you can jump in here first, though. It, it seems like the costs of doing business, the costs of this neocolonialism are raising because South Korea not only has received this legitimacy crisis from the Pentagon leaks, the U.S. spying on their Ukraine conversation, high-level officials, but also the CHIPS Act of the United States has been an absolute disaster for South Korea's economy. Well, what, what's your take on uh, President Yoon's visit and, and where it fits in all of these uh, changes that Ali and all of us have been talking about? Well, where we're getting to is the point where the allyship of the United States will actually be more costly than the distance from the United States. So at the moment, it still seems to be at a place where they are better close to you for some of these uh, states that we're talking about. But the time will come when the cost will be larger. Of course, the United States need to remember the 36,000 U.S. soldiers 
that died in Korea and millions across Korea that died from the U.S. war there, the targeting of agriculture. How is it that any person that has a true understanding of what the United States has done to their society, look at Japan, for example, and the use of nuclear weapons, which were not needed at all in any um, justification. And how is it that people can today turn around and look at the United States as a good faith actor in their country? Even if you look at Iraq today, you know, it's often a conversation I'll have with the the more pro-American Iraqis that I know. The U.S. spent so much money on establishing uh, methods of communication through the media in order to brainwash and essentially culturally engineer a society which they had pulverized and bombed into the Stone Age in many ways. So I'm sure that the, the same kind of mechanisms of tutelage of, of, of elites has taken place, of course, in South Korea and in Japan. But I think that's going to become harder and harder um, to sustain over time, without a doubt. And I just think one one element that uh, you know the the point about uh, being allied with or being a vassal of the United States becoming more and more costly and and more cost than it's worth. I think a perfect example of that is Germany. Germany and Japan had a a good deal in a sense with the United States post World War II. Because the the deal was the U.S. will be responsible for uh, military defense, which is why Germany and Japan were both basically U.S. military bases. And those countries spent very little on on military, on their militaries, uh, relatively speaking, and built up their economies, the uh, so-called... German Wirtschaftswunder, economic uh, miracle of the 50s and 60s, and Japan as well, raising them up to the highest standards of living in in the world. And certainly that would have made those populations feel very comfortable with and supportive of the relationship with the United States notwithstanding the many drawbacks that it it, uh, might have had. But now look how the United States is treating Germany. They blew up Nord Stream. They blew up Nord Stream. And that was the guarantee, really, of any future German prosperity because the German economy, in order to be competitive, it does two things. It has to, uh, you know, when you buy goods from Germany, they are very high-value-added goods. You're buying high-end automobiles or machine tools or other sorts of industrial goods that are very high-value-added. You're not buying uh, low-cost household goods from Germany. But even so, to remain competitive, Germany needs a source of inexpensive power. They've just shut down their nuclear power stations they, and they have cut themselves off from Russia. Where is Germany going to get the energy supplies in order to maintain its global competitive when, competitiveness when other countries are now able to 
if not completely match, replace a lot of the things that you would previously get from somewhere like Germany. I don't see how this adds up in the long run. And so what is the future of Europe in this picture? We've already seen, I, I don't think the full cost has yet, the full bill has been presented in Germany yet. But in France, we've seen clearly that it's, it's going to be a cut in the standard of living. And we've seen Macron in this incredibly authoritarian and undemocratic way force through the um, pension cuts. That's what they are. Whenever you say reform, reform is a polite word for saying cuts. Same in the US when you talk about welfare, welfare reform or social security reform. That always means taking away things from people who need it. So that is the future of these countries if they do not seek another path. And the difference between Western Europe, which is sort of culturally much closer to the United States because of their shared history of colonialism and imperialism, they are going to go down with the sinking ship, probably, at least most of them. But you look at, at a country like South Korea, and where are they? They're, again, they're, you know, 10,000 miles away from the United States, and their neighbor is China. Their neighbor is North Korea. They are part, that, that's their family. Their family is North Korea. Uh, they're closer to India. They're closer to Japan, albeit for the history there, Japan is still, still their neighbor. And, you, and again, it's like Saudi Arabia. I can't see how these countries can look at the circus in the United States, the political circus, and say, yeah, these are, these are the people we're going to depend on to protect us from anything that might happen. It's just, it would be utter madness. So these countries are going to have to start seeking a different future if they're not going to go down with the ship. Mm, yeah, yeah. And Loki, do you have anything you want to add? No, absolutely. You know, you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, you look at even in the EU, the uh, the uh, Plus 16 um, project, you look at the um, all the other ways in which uh, China is bringing together different um, nation states to work for a more cooperative uh, future. Undoubtedly, uh, people are going to have to get involved. 19 uh, states are applying to join the BRICS. You know, the BRICS as it stands is about something like 30% of the uh, global economy. When you add more uh, nation states, it's going to change uh, even more. So definitely uh, people will have to uh, get involved and get with the program. So <laughs> I got a cyber in the background. But uh, Ali, I know you have to go soon, but I do have one question that a Patreon uh, member, so for those of you who want to support this channel, Patreon is the best place. And uh, I do have one question for you. That's one thing I do, uh, um, you know, allow folks to do is to ask questions of guests. And I don't know if you followed the recent McCarthyist um, you know, uh, indictment of several members of the Uhuru mm. uh, and African People's Socialist Party, Uhuru movement, the African People's Socialist Party. But there was, of course, a Russian national who was, um, you know, who's also implicated. And, you know, um, this person, John, wants to know 
is if you can compare what the Justice Department is accusing Ianov, who is the Russian national in this Uhuru case, to what the Israeli lobby does on a regular basis, because a lot of this has to do with Ianov traveling or or allowing, you know, creating these trips for American activists, American-based activists to go on. Uh, does the Israeli lobby ever pay politicians planes tickets? And do those politicians have to register as foreign agents? Well, uh, there's a couple of things to say about this. First of all, I, I haven't read the indictments uh, in these cases. I've read the news coverage. And just from that, I think it's completely outrageous. I think that uh, this is, in a sense, a return I think it's a return to COINTELPRO. The United States, the FBI, uh, have a long, uh, a long history of persecuting black radicals in this country. It is a historic fact that many of the most radical and revolutionary uh, and successful popular movements in this country have been led by black people and black radicals. And that is why the, uh, the sledgehammer of the state has always been brought down on the heads of black radical movements. It's here in Chicago that Fred Hampton was murdered by uh, the, the uh, assassin. It's basically executed by the state. Uh, so uh, and it's a well-known history of how uh, the FBI systematically dismantled uh, the uh, Black Panthers and the radical movement in, in the 60s and 70s. So I see it as a direct continuation of that. And it is also a product of the Democratic Party's um, revival of McCarthyism in relation to Russia. Of course, in the past, it would have been the Soviet Union. Now it's Russia. But it, it, it holds exactly the same place in the American liberal imagination and also, by the way, we've been seeing it with the claims about China. There was the indictment recently, these, these uh, bogus claims of China setting up police stations in, uh, in New York, which seems to me equally bogus. It looks like these are just kind of the sorts of mutual aid uh, service centers that many uh, immigrant communities have always had in this country, and they're trying to turn it into some scary... Oh, the Chinese are setting up police stations in the United States to spy on people. It comes from the same place. But I don't think this would have been quite possible in this way without the Democratic Party's fabricated Russiagate narrative that, that uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign fabricated after her loss to Donald Trump the most uh, unpopular candidate in history, she still managed to lose to him, or the, the, the least respected candidate in history, she still managed to lose to him, and they needed to invent this narrative. But Russiagate has served so many purposes for the elites and the establishment to use as a weapon uh, to silence people, to smear people, to call them foreign agents, what have you. And we know, we've known for years now, that if there was any interference in the U.S. election in 2016, it was um, it was Israel. You remember when uh, 
who was it? The guy who was the, I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name now, Flynn, Michael Flynn, who was indicted initially as part of Russiagate. Uh, and because supposedly he had had, uh, after Trump won in 2016, but before he took office, he supposedly had a, a discussion with the Russian ambassador, which as far as I understand is completely normal in coming in administrations, will start having diplomatic contacts with other countries. But what was Flynn trying to do? He was trying to pressure Russia to uh, veto a UN resolution about uh, Israel building settlements on Palestinian land. So it, the Trump administration was interceding with Russia on behalf of Israel. It wasn't the Russians uh, 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 interfering in U.S. politics. So, yes, of course, I mean, to answer the question, the difference is that all of the political corruption that the Israel lobby engages in, and not just the Israel lobby, other lobbies as well, but all of that corruption is completely legal. Uh, it's the same way that, you know, you have these global indexes of the world, of the, the most corrupt countries in the world. And, you know, I, these various organizations make these lists. And I don't think the U.S. is ever on them because all the corruption in the United States is legal. You know, the, 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 the massive financial frauds, the bailouts, the huge foreclosure crisis where no one went to prison for the massive mortgage fraud that happened in you know, that led to the 2008 crisis and nobody went to prison because it's all legal. So it's similar with the Israel lobby's influence on, um, on U.S. politicians. I'll give you just one example of that. Uh, a, a few years ago, they, there was a law that would have limited um, uh, the amount of sort of money and hospitality, as they call it, and and, and, and junkets that lobby groups could give to members of Congress. And the lobby managed to get sort of a carve-out in the law that said there is an exemption for educational trips. So what did APAC do? They got this exemption in the law, and they set up a separate entity called the American uh, Israel Educational Foundation, the, uh, I think that's that's the name from the, the top of my head. Uh, and so it, they just created this cutout to take American politicians on exactly the same junkets, but now they just call them educational. But the, you know, five-star tours, they take them on junkets and they show them everything, but they stay in the best hotels and they have great meals. And they take pretty much every freshman class of uh, members of Congress on these junkets, uh, you know, very soon after they're elected. So it's all, but it's all legal. It's all uh, legal. The, no, the, the, the FBI, the, the Justice Department won't indict you for it because the law says it's legal, but it's corruption on a massive scale. Whereas, you know, as I said, with the caveat that I haven't read the indictment, but uh, of, of the the black uh, uh, socialist socialists in Florida, but I'm willing to bet it's pure bullshit. Well, Ali, 
Uh, it was great to be with you today. Um, Loki, I don't know if you want to uh, stick around for another a few minutes or you need to go as well. But um, Avi, I know that you need to go. All right. I, I'm sorry I have to go. But again, okay. thank you for the wonderful discussion. And it, it's it's always great to to be with you. No problem. And thanks so much, Ali. Be sure to follow uh, the Electronic Intifada and follow Ali on Twitter as that's his handle right there. Um, all right. Bye, Ali. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, Loki. All right. So I don't know if you want to follow up on anything that uh, Ali yeah. was saying. I do have one other topic maybe we can get into before uh, I let you go. Well, I'm happy to follow up on that. I mean, when you look at Joe Biden's record, you'd understand why mass incarceration um, and especially sort of uh, totalitarianism like this is not the aberration for him. Of course, he sponsored and partly wrote the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which actually created a big disparity between sentences for crack and powder cocaine. And of course, that had a massive effect on the black community and mass incarceration. He also co-sponsored the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, which increased prison sentences for um, drug possession. But most importantly, he drafted the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill, which actually doubled the US prison population and quadrupled the sentences that people were getting. He even went as far as referring to the omnibus crime bill as the Biden crime law. You have to remember that when George H.W. Bush um, uh, pushed the war on drugs, Biden actually said that it didn't go far enough. He claimed it wasn't tough enough, bold enough or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand. And on top of that, Joe Biden actually takes credit for the Patriot Act, which is mass surveillance without the necessity of a warrant. So, of course, we have all of that making clear who Joe Biden is. Let's not forget that Kamala Harris, she came from the background of putting people in jail. You know, we have obviously the example of uh, someone like Paul Robeson when he was attempting to agitate within U.S. society against things like lynching, um, against uh, uh, discrimination against African-Americans within U.S. society. What was he um, uh, stamped with? He was stamped with that idea of uh, Stalin's stooge. So it's a, a well-worn trope, which is used often to define internal outsiders and push them into a space of rightlessness. And that's what we've seen happen. I'm in no doubt like Ali um, in the case that you have mentioned, but also an interesting aspect of what we were saying about Israel lobby groups is in Britain, you have several Israel lobby groups like the Community Security Trust um, that are actually funded by the British government. So now you actually have organizations which lobby on behalf of the Israeli government being funded by the taxpayer. So, for example, uh, the Community Security Trust gets £15 million a year. And when Michael Gove set aside money to the Community Security Trust as Education Secretary, he was simultaneously on the advisory board of that organisation. Another interesting example of what we're talking about is something called the UK Israel Tech Hub. 
Now, this is an organization which exists to obtain British public sector contracts for Israeli tech companies. But guess where it's based? It's based in the British embassy in Israel. It's staffed by former Israeli military and Israeli intelligence figures. And it's funded by the British taxpayer. It's funded by the British Foreign Office. And then another amazing example, which could never be um, in this situation if it was vis-a-vis a different state, is the example of the tech company Oracle. So Oracle um, were set up um, basically to service the CIA by uh, Larry Ellison, who by some accounts is the fourth richest person in the world today. It built a database for the CIA. It then has gone on in recent years to procure the contract to provide cloud infrastructure to not only the Ministry of Defense in Britain, but also the NHS and the Home Office. So when it comes to the Ministry of Defense and the Home Office, this is key national security data, which is being handled by Oracle. But what they don't tell you is that Larry Ellison, as the top shareholder in Oracle and the founder of it, is the highest donor on record to the Israeli military. In addition to that, Safra Katz, the Israeli CEO, the current CEO of Oracle, has has said, we are publicly committed to Israel. Myself and Larry are committed to Israel and our company is committed to Israel. And she even went as far as saying that if employees did not like Oracle's relationship with Israel, then they need to find another company. So think about that, what that's saying, that a company with this level of relationship to Israel somehow is holding key British national security data. Of course, in the United States, you have the example of Ohad Zaydenberg, who formerly from Unit 8200 in the Israeli military, it is the equivalent of GCHQ in the British intelligence sense. They monitor um, uh, telecommunications. And Unit 8200 often use that information to blackmail Palestinians into becoming collaborators. But the interesting thing about Ohad Zaydenberg is not only is he an alumni of Unit 8200, but also he currently works for an organization funded by the Israeli government. Now, he set up something called the Cyber Justice League um, during the COVID uh, pandemic and offered his services to key sectors in the United States um, pro bono. So this is cybersecurity being given to nuclear reactors, to hospitals, and to other key sections of U.S. importance. And so what we're talking about is a company that has a direct relation to Israeli intelligence holding um, key data in the United States. Even if you look at a company like Lados, which has access to numerous classified um, databases within the US, uh, the Pentagon, for example. But what's Lados's relationship with Israeli intelligence? Again, it has cybersecurity delivered by a company which is full of alumni from Israeli intelligence. Would that be conceivable for um, former uh, for alumni 
of uh, Russian intelligence or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you bring up a lot of good points. It's it's all it's all so connected. Um, I did want to ask you one more question because I know you said you had about ninety minutes. Um, so there's one other development that I found quite striking, and I thought you might have something to say about it. Uh, we have South Africa, uh, of course, South Africa uh, being the kind of forebearer of the uh, struggle against apartheid is now saying that it's going to set into motion leaving the International Criminal Court because uh, you mentioned BRICS earlier in the program, Loki. There's going to be a BRICS summit in August, and that's going to be held in South Africa. And the ICC has issued an arrest warrant. If you're a signatory of the ICC and the ICC says there's an arrest warrant on Vladimir Putin, for example, which there is, uh, um, that South Africa would be obligated to follow that, follow that warrant and take steps. Uh, 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 Ramaphosa is saying that he, the president of South Africa, that there are talks about this. There's a lot of inclination that uh, the talks are mainly how to get out of the ICC. What do you have to make of this development? The ICC has a very controversial record on the African continent as well with the reputation of simply um, going after African leaders while, of course, leaving the United States and what's now known as the collective West in many circles uh, untouched. So so what do you have to make a, a, of this development? Any reactions to it? Well, of course, the British media is falling over itself to depict this as a, a quintessentially aggressive act um, on behalf of South Africa. But what I would say is it's significantly less aggressive than the American Service Members Protection Act. Now, this is known as the Hague Invasion Act. What this allows is for the U.S. president to order the U.S. military to invade the Hague, where the ICC is located, to take any American officials or military personnel from the Hague and rescue them from custody if the ICC were to get even a sniff of the idea of prosecuting any U.S. Uh, officials, whether it is for the abuse and torture at Abu Ghraib, whether it's for the use of white phosphorus and depleted uranium in Fallujah, which has left them with a higher um, toxicity than Hiroshima, whether it is to punish the United States for the plethora of its wars across the last five to six to seven decades. You have seen the US do everything it can to say very, very clearly that it would go to war with the ICC for pursuing that. So this, again, is an important step by South Africa, uh, making clear that the idea of the international consensus, the idea of the rules-based international order, which is nothing but hypocrisy in the service of U.S. imperialism and double standards and moralizing of moral monsters, um, that it no longer holds weight, actually, and that the, the, the narrative which has been pinned onto what has happened in Ukraine, the United States has consolidated its power in Europe, but during this period, it has lost its power everywhere else across the rest of the world. Another interesting example, I'm somebody that watches the Arabic news uh, regularly, 
And look at Sky News Arabic, Sky News Arabia. Now, this is obviously an element of Murdoch's media control, just to make clear the extent of Sky News's servility to U.S. imperialism during the time that the U.S. occupied Afghanistan um, for 20 years and caused uh, millions of refugees and hundreds of thousands of people to die, the foreign news editor at uh, Sky News was a lady called Lorna Ward. Lorna Ward was simultaneous to being the foreign news editor at Sky News, was an advisor to the Lieutenant General of NATO. Now, imagine that. Um, but what's interesting today is that Sky News Arabia is not on NATO's side of what's happening in Ukraine. It actually has, and this is because the editorial line for Sky News Arabia is decided by the UAE government. So what you actually have today is in Arabic, a show called Min Moscow, from Moscow, which is transmitted from Russia, giving the uh, A, Russian perspective on what's happening in Ukraine. And that's on Sky News Arabia. That is a weekly show. So all of this is symptomatic of the elite narrative of what is happening in the world withering away in the face of new understandings of geopolitics. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, there were some some in the chat and, you know, there there's been some misleading headlines actually about this, too. I was just seeing the Financial Times talking about this decision. The headline is uh, that uh, um, uh, South Africa uh, is reconsidering, but actually the news is that South Africa is considering, which is a huge move considering leaving the ICC. I mean, this isn't the first time in 2015 during the Sudan crisis, ongoing crisis, unfortunately, for Sudan. But um, uh, uh, Bashir, Omar al-Bashir, who was the president at the time, um, had a similar um, um, arrest warrant for him in South Africa, protested, saying that, you know, uh, you can't just tell us what to do. Um, and we we're concerned that they didn't leave at that time. But it seems like I mean, this is the stakes seem even higher here, because, uh, as you said, Loki, Russia is is a key ally of South Africa now. And uh, uh, earlier when we were talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, Ramaphosa was one of the first leaders to say to uh, Saudi officials as uh, Saudi officials were visiting that, yeah, you should join BRICS. And, and that is you should come and join BRICS with us. So, I mean, yeah, it is a changing world and, and we all have to look forward to you. Do you have any uh, final comments on this? I'd just like to say, you know, keep up the great work, Danny. You know, we are pushing towards a a better, a more just, a more equal world. And the work that you are doing and many others, just like Ali, is helping us get there bit by bit, uh, day by day. So solidarity with you, brother. Keep it up. Thank you. Yeah, no, and appreciate appreciate you coming on today. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, generous comments in the chat about um about your work and, and your music and uh i always like to say whenever you're on or whenever i am um referring to you is that you know during those early 20 years of mine a decade ago i was listening to your work i mean i still listen to you 
but I was listening nonstop because your work was just so instrumental in, especially in that moment still is, but, um, and everyone should definitely check out your music and I'm waiting for you to perform in the United States, but I get, I know you had a lot of issues coming here last time when you tried. Um, but, uh, you know, um, anyway, but maybe we should be in touch because I'll actually be in London um, in about six weeks. So five or six weeks. So if you're in town, um, I'll be staying with Carlos, actually. So <laughs> Fantastic. I'll, I'll be taking you out. Yeah, maybe we should all all meet up. Um, but it was really good to be with you today. Um, and yeah, anything you want to plug before you go? Thank you so much for your kind words. I really, really appreciate it. Please support Danny on Patreon. It is massively important that as many um, vehicles such as this exist on YouTube in that very, very uh, ideologically slanted space. So please do um, support Danny in what he does. Peace and love. And peace. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good. To, all right. I'm going to stay on everyone. Uh, and for those who want to follow low key, go to Mint Press News on YouTube and do subscribe uh, to them as well because he's he's doing a really good show called The Watchdog. He's had Alan McLeod on recently. Uh, these are all great folks that you should be supporting. So that was a great talk, and I'm just going to be on for a few more minutes. All right, so stick around uh, just for some housekeeping announcements. Um, I think we covered almost everything, but uh, um, so I don't think I'll cover content today. Um, after this, but a few announcements. So I will probably be live again this coming weekend. Okay. So Saturday or Sunday night, um, likely. And, uh, so be sure to save the date. Uh, I have a lot of interesting guests. I'm hoping to get on, uh, next month, I guess now, um, Mick Wallace. I've been in touch with for Mbembe of the socialist party of Zambia, uh, so I'm trying to diversify the voices here, get some um, of those from the African world and, um, you know, back to Europe with Mick Wallace. So uh, but stay tuned. And of course, all of my regulars on I'm uh, I'm going to be back in touch with Brian Berletic and Scott Ritter, who are regulars on this show. So uh, next month should be great. And then so for all of you who are still on, thank you so much for the super chats, by the way. Uh, Loki was very generous to plug me on Patreon. Uh, I am going through, actually, I'm going through kind of an equipment disaster right now. Right before the stream, I was um, told a delivery of some really important equipment of mine was delivered. It's not actually here. And we, I've had some package issues in the building of mine, stolen packages, of course. Um, but it is equipment upgrade time for me. I'm actually doing almost... I'm doing a really big overhaul of my computer device, as well as um, I'm getting a phone and some vlogging equipment. So when I travel, I can do some of this work um, for fun and also to talk about things as I travel around because I have travel plans, as I said, with low key. So please do support me on Patreon. That's the best place. That's how um, I make most of um, my revenue, whatever I can uh, sort of get um, in order to do this to help the show be more sustainable and to help um, keep this work going. And so thank you for all of you who can. So that is right there. My name, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. There are annual options. You can submit questions, guests. Actually, Loki and Ali Abunima were guest suggestions. I did have them in mind. I always 
I love talking to Ali Abunima because and Loki because they're so knowledgeable and also people that I've followed for years now. Um, but they were suggestions on Patreon as well that helped toggle my memory and that helped me suggest you know reach out to them and here we are today. So you can suggest guests. You can also ask questions of guests like John, who I asked, who's a Patreon member. And there's so many other things you can get over at Patreon, some exclusive audio as well for those who are more in the podcast kind of uh, game. So that is what you can get on Patreon. But there's also Substack. Everyone subscribe for free on Substack if you can, regardless. If you can subscribe uh, for a paid amount, there, of course, is an annual option and a monthly option there. But you can subscribe for free and get notifications because, as you might have noticed, you know, this stream, because it was at an off time, got fewer viewers. But one of the reasons why there are fewer viewers, too, is because YouTube is historically and always pretty bad at notifying. So I do ask, you know, Substack subscriptions, Telegram. You can find that in my channel banner and in my link tree. Subscribe in those places because you will always be notified by me directly from these platforms when I go live for so that you can catch it and you don't always have to rely on YouTube. But I do suggest, of course, subscribing and hitting the notifications bell on YouTube as well. Um, with that, all of that said, everyone, there was one question I didn't get to from the Super Chats, uh, but perhaps I can just quickly, uh, before I get out of here and figure out some of this uh, tech nightmare stuff, uh, get to it was a good question but um yeah with all of that said that's the deal with me um it should be uh no that's not it thank you for all the super chats by the way and maybe at the end i can let's see here we go so here's a great super chat thank you david uh, is there hope for the people of the U.S. to force this government to change course and put people into power to think globally with an eye to the future instead of being led by dinosaurs with mid-1900s thinking? So, David, that's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> I think there is, of course, hope. And I think that hope uh, lies in the fact that the United States is losing the narrative globally. And it is only so long until there is a sea change politically in the United States as well. In prior periods, you may remember if you were alive, you probably were not alive. Uh, I wasn't alive. But if you remember in all the periods of some of the greatest historic changes, let's say during the uh, Russian Revolution to World War uh, One and a bit after period, the Great Depression, etc. And then to the World War Two, post-World War Two era, one of the reasons why there was such an upswing politically in the United States is because the, because the world situation was much more favorable. And so when the Soviet Union fell, the world situation became less and less favorable because you lost in the fall of the Soviet Union an incredibly important bulwark against U.S. imperial unipolar domination. That was just the truth. Whatever you thought of the Soviet Union, whatever you think of socialism or communism, doesn't really matter. Because the facts are that the Soviet Union's mere presence, its ability to industrialize, to advance technologically, and also its, but most importantly, its aid to liberation movements abroad and its capacity to defend itself with nuclear weapons with a different social system did place pressure on the United States and the collective West in general 
to make incredibly important reforms that honestly shaped the social order perhaps more than any other social movement in the, let's say, collective West countries. And that's not to diminish the movements of uh, workers and people, oppressed people in the collective West who fought really hard, massive strikes and protest movements to get certain things. But if it wasn't for the presence of the Soviet Union and a block of countries that did say, well, we're going to chart a different course and we're going to build up ourselves in a sovereign way and in a much different way with different priorities. If it wasn't for that, the world would have been a very different place at those times. And perhaps these massive economic crises like the Great Depression wouldn't have been recovered from as quickly as they were. And so now we're in a period where a, a, a similar but different phenomenon is happening. It's not socialist bloc Cold War era anymore, but there is this multipolar moment where, yeah, China and Russia and a host of global South countries, the vast majority of the world, are saying we're going to develop in a different way. We're going to respect our development models. We're not going to say one is better than the other. China's socialism with Chinese characteristics isn't better than the United Russia Party's kind of resource nationalism, um, you know, versus Venezuela's brand of socialism versus, let's say, uh, you know, whatever social system is present in the BRICS countries from India's model, South Africa's model. No, these countries are saying we can respect each other's development models, but we can also develop in a sovereign manner and we can cooperate in a mutually beneficial way. And that is more than anything, undermining this narrative that the United States is best, it knows best, it's exceptional, and that it should dominate the world. And so with all of that said, this pressure that's being placed on the United States because of this, this uh, pressure to sort of project its dominance even further is only further eroding its legitimacy. And that is to say that the longer this goes on, the harsher the conditions within the U.S. and within the EU become, it is only so long that there will be a reckoning, that people will have to reckon with this changed world just like they had to reckon with it during the uh, uh, Russian Revolution post-1917, during the Cold War era. People had to reckon with it. And now there are a lot of folks who bought into the Cold War hysterics and were taken quite uh, uh, quite far with McCarthyism. And we can see the results today where you have a lot of especially liberals in the collective West who are so committed to McCarthyism, anti-Russia sentiment, anti-China hysterics, etc., and are very supportive of their government's policies if, you know, on these matters. But at the same time, there will be many more who will have to reckon with this and, and look deeper. And I think that's happening. I think that's why there is growth. I think that's why channels who focus on geopolitics, who follow international developments in this manner with a more fair, balanced view of what's happening around the world. I think that's why uh, there is more interest in this is because more people are trying to dig deeper and understand this. And there's also an interesting thing happening, which can both be good and bad. You know, I am on the, I think, the real left. And so uh, I look at this very soberly and I see uh, so-called kind of right wing figures like Donald Trump and various forces in Europe hedging their bets, not necessarily a multipolarity, 
because that's not what they would say. But they're hedging their bets on the fact that a total unipolar policy of domination is both one, bad for business, and two, bad for their political possibilities. If they were to just simply mirror and mimic Biden, Borrell, and these folks, they would have absolutely zero legitimacy and zero shot to have a political career beyond what is going on now. So you have a lot of people now listening and being exposed to in the mainstream, even though they come from the political right, so to speak, you have a lot of people being exposed to these anti-interventionist ideas. And I think that's something that we do have to seize upon. We do have to help people understand this because it is true. People like Marloni, uh, Maloney in Italy, people like Le Pen in France, Donald Trump in the US, they won't necessarily explain phenomena. They won't necessarily help us understand what the right path is. And then they will eventually veer, as we saw during the Trump administration, veer on choosing one country over the other, right? So it, uh, detente with Russia, but economic war with China. And so we have to be very careful to not just simply say, well, Trump is right. It is true. He is right. He's right on Ukraine. He's right on some things. Le Pen is right on some things as well. But we have to have a more comprehensive uh, analysis and we have to be able to understand the whole and not just the part. And I think that the more that is done, the more hope there is for people in the United States in particular to build their consciousness, build up the kind of activity and the kind of world that they want to live in and hopefully align with the multipolar world in the multipolar moment. But that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to happen right away. And it's also something that's going to uh, be a work in progress because politics in the U.S. will shift independently of that. So, you know, we are already seeing how politics have shifted uh, the Biden administration now in office. But in the U.S., that could be not the case in 2024, and that will create a different political moment. But even, let's say, under a GOP-led House, we haven't seen much of a difference. The GOP talks about how they want to end funding on Ukraine, but now they're spending a lot of time creating things like committees on the CCP, quote-unquote, with China. That's not a positive development, and it shows that there will always be, no matter which wing of the duopoly is in power, they will maybe on the one hand criticize some things that the other is doing, but they'll eventually unite or they will always unite on very key issues, especially with foreign policy. And what's so interesting about this moment, I think, is that the historic left, quote unquote, and this is what I think the biggest challenge will be here, is that the historic left, um, the uh, forces in the United States that call themselves the left, and many of them under the umbrella of the Democratic Party, are being more and more exposed, every single, from the Obama era onward, but even since the Clinton, since the era of neoliberalism, this quote-unquote left, really liberals, liberalism in the U.S., has collapsed. It's, it's absolutely and utterly illegitimate. And one huge issue that has arisen out of that is that as it's become more illegitimate because uh, it, it is reliant upon false promises, it has actually taken very such extreme positions to the point where it is hard to discern the difference between the political right and the political and the so-called left in the United States. And uh, we can see how this is the case with 
the GOP is willing to criticize the Democrats' Ukraine policy, but the Democrats are not willing to criticize the GOP's China policy. I think you had Ro Khanna say something very light in that the United States doesn't want a war with China, and that's why this House committee is ridiculous. These war games are dangerous. But Ro Khanna certainly doesn't represent the majority of Democrats in Congress, nor has Ro Khanna himself been very consistent on this issue. He has gone on CNN and other outlets uh, riding the wave of anti-China sentiment, sounding the alarm about China, reinforcing this dangerous conflict that the U.S. is moving toward with China and engaging in at the moment. So the Democrats have been unwilling to challenge anything the GOP did. You remember whenever Trump followed along with the neocon policies of the establishment, Trump was praised, right? When he dropped missiles on Syria 2017 and 18, he was called presidential. Uh, when he dropped this huge bomb um, um, over Afghanistan, a test, uh, he was called uh, uh, strong, right? So uh, when he assassinated uh, Qasem Soleimani of Iran, the general of Iran, you saw the Democrats not bat an eye about that and actually talk about it pretty glowingly, considerably, right? A great, a great way to respond to Iran is what it was framed as. So this is the reality. And, and that's why these terms left and right can be very challenging because it, it, when we're looking at concrete political positions and then policies, we see the unity among the establishment transcending these so-called uh, uh, philosophical differences. And that's why if we're going to build an independent movement, an independent orientation to them, we're going to have to be able to define what it means for us. And and I don't think that's happened yet, and, 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 but I think that will be a huge task um, you know, in the future. But with that said, everyone, that was a great question. I should head out now. Um, thank you all for the super chats. Thank you all. Uh, thank you, Val, for your membership, uh, Valley. Uh, thanks for all those members who attended today. Um, so yeah, you can hit that like button, hit that notifications bell, make sure you're hitting the like button before you go, um, hit that subscribe button as well. And, uh, be sure to check out all the links in the description from link in the link tree. You can find all of them, Patreon, Substack. Uh, be sure to join as a YouTube member if you can. Uh, so all of those ways are great ways to support. And I'll see you next time. Take good care and have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye.